Our, sec our second scripture reading is from the book of Ecclesiastes, chapter 3. For everything there is a season and a time for every matter under heaven, a time to be born and a time to die, a time to plant and a time to pluck up what is planted, a time to kill and a time to heal, a time to break down and a time to build up, a time to weep and a time to laugh, a time to mourn and a time to dance, a time to cast away stones and a time to gather stones together, a time to embrace and a time to refrain from embracing, a time to seek and a time to lose, a time to keep and a time to cast away, a time to tear and a time to sow, a time to keep silence and a time to speak, a time to love and a time to hate, a time for war and a time for peace. What gain has the worker from his toil? I have seen the business that God has given to the children of man to be busy with. He has made everything beautiful in its time. Also, he has put eternity into man's heart, yet so that he cannot find out what God has done from the beginning to the end. I perceive that there is nothing better for them than to be joyful and to do good as long as they live. Also, that everyone should eat and drink and take pleasure in all his toil. This is God's gift to man. I perceive that whatever God does endures forever. Nothing can be added to it, nor anything taken from it. God has done it, so that people fear before him. That which is already has been. That which is to be already has been. And God seeks what has been driven away. Moreover, I saw under the sun that in the place of justice, even there was wickedness. And in the place of righteousness, even there was wickedness. I said in my heart, God will judge the righteous and the wicked, for there is a time for every matter and for every work. I said in my heart, with regard to the children of man, that God is testing them, that they may see that they themselves are but, are but beasts. For what happens to the children of man and what happens to the beasts is the same. As one dies, so dies the other. They all have the same breath and no man has advantage over the beasts, for all is vanity. All go to one place, all are from the dust, and to dust all return. The word of the Lord. I too was disappointed when Sheila Morris just read that passage and didn't sing it for us. Turn, turn, turn. Solomon gives us that famous passage that many of us know because of the bird's song, but let's go back to it again just in a couple of the verses. For everything Solomon observes, he's observing the world around him. For everything there is a season and a time for every matter under heaven. Just to hit on a couple, a time to be born and die, to kill and to heal, to weep and to laugh, a time for love, to hate, a time for war, and a time for peace. The commentators are pretty much agreed here. When you read through this, the whole point of it is time marches on and we can stop it with no power. We have nothing, no ability to stop the march of time. It just keeps rolling on. We know this to be true. I don't know how many of you have had kids go through Vienna Little League, 
but at the beginning of the season, they have an opening day ceremony at the Little League ball field. All the teams are there from the T-ballers up to the majors, 12-year-olds. They sit around on the field, and they have an opening pitch or two. Some local dignitaries say a few words. And then there's this, this row of, of teenage boys wearing their uniforms. These are high school baseball players who play for Madison and Marshall and Oakton and Paul VI. And they were guys who played in Vienna when they were younger. And each of them is given a chance at the mic. Every year that I've been there, and I've been there for about six or seven years now, every year that I've been there, at least one high school kid, usually three or four, say to all these boys out there, these 9, 10, 11, 12-year-old boys, they say, enjoy it while it lasts. It goes by so quickly. These are 16-year-old men speaking to 12-year-old boys. It's like they've reached the end of life, <laughs> you know. But it's true. It goes by so quickly. Enjoy it while it lasts. Great wisdom from these baseball players. I remember being about their age and looking back as a high school student on my elementary school days. And I don't know what prompted it, but being very deeply sad that all those games of tag and building forts and riding bikes were gone. You couldn't go back there again. And any of you out there who have your own kids or have had your own kids know that it's almost sometimes too painful to look at pictures of them when they were toddlers. They, they used to be so small and so cute, and it goes by so quickly. Solomon concludes, time marches on and we cannot stop it. Solomon is identifying this in his grand sweeping search for meaning. And so when he's articulating these things, he's talking not just about an individual life. Like he says in verses 1 through 8, there's a time for war, a time for peace, a time to plant, a time to reap. He's not talking about every single individual has all these things happen. But as you look over the course of, of a human life, and over the course of human existence, in the history of human existence. These are the sorts of things that happen. There is nothing new under the sun. Time marches on, and we can do nothing to stop it. He's trying to ask this question, because he's asking the big question. He's asking, where is it all going? Where is all of this going? And from a purely observation point of view, an objective observation point of view, all he can say is, Nowhere. We can't know where it's going, if it's going anywhere at all. The sum is this. We are powerless. It's often we are just pawns. We are sandcastles before the incoming tide of time. Solomon's conclusions can actually be seen in a couple of the verses in the middle of this section. In verse 11 and 14, he concludes as he looks at time in human history, we cannot find out what God has done from the beginning to the end. We just can't know. What God does endures forever. Nothing can be added to it nor anything taken from it. We are powerless. When it comes to the lifespan and the human existence, we do not understand how it all fits together and we are not in control. Some people endure war, 
and loss, and some people enjoy love and healing, and we can't understand why. Now, Solomon doesn't actually say this, but if you were going to follow his logic out, the conclusion of observing life purely from an objective and and, uh, scientific point of view is that life is random and life is accidental. If we're going to give some visual uh, way to look at this, if if you look at a series of dots on a screen, smeared colors, this is essentially what life is like. You're just one of those dots. The sum of your existence is one of your dots. I'm picking that reddish dot down there towards the bottom on the right. But that's it. That's you. That's the sum of your existence is one of these smears. In the midst of a whole sea of smears, go ahead and try and make some meaning out of it. But most of us are not satisfied with that. Most of us are not satisfied with life as a random dot on a smear of random dots. Most of us are not even satisfied with the basic conclusion that Solomon gives us that there's a time for this and a time for that and we can't know why. Most of us, whether you're in here and you believe in God or not, most of us want a narrative. We want a trajectory. We want something to orient us and give us direction in life. The philosophers all talk about this. We are all looking for an origin and an end or a goal. We want those to give us the direction, to orient us and give us direction in life. We want a sense that there's a bigger story that we can be a part of. And it's critical to have an understanding of where we come from and where it's going to understand our own purpose and direction in this life. But many of us, many people, maybe not in this room, but probably some, are unsure where to find that direction. How do I orient my life? And so what do we do? We do what the modern philosophers say we should do. We construct meaning, purpose, and direction on our own. We come up with our own narrative, our own sense of what's important and why we're going to live our life that way. We construct our purpose and our meaning and our happiness through things that we've talked about the past few weeks, false idols and counterfeit gods. So just to play that out, if you haven't been with us the past couple weeks, when we talk about that word idol, we don't mean a statue. We're talking about things that become central to your heart. Tim Keller in the book Counterfeit Gods that we were giving out a few weeks back identifies what an idol is, and he says this. An idol is whatever you look at and say in your heart of hearts, if I have that, then I'll know my life has meaning. Then I'll know I have value. I'll feel significant and secure. Elsewhere, he says, the human heart takes good things like career, love, and material possessions, even family, and turns them into ultimate things. Our hearts deify them as the integrating centers of our lives because we think they can give us significance and security, safety, and complete fulfillment if we attain them. We all go after something to orient us, to give us direction, to find meaning and purpose, something that becomes ultimate in our lives. 
Over the past two weeks, we looked at some of the things that Solomon explored in this way. In Ecclesiastes 2, we saw that he was looking at pleasure as maybe the the way to find joy and happiness in life. And then achievement and success. We even talked last week about just being a good guy, really nice person. Can any of these things give you direction and purpose and meaning that lasts? Solomon's conclusion was no. These things are not weighty enough to fulfill your need for a life of purpose and meaning. They're not big enough. And if we were going to take this exercise a little bit further and say, what other things do we put our trust in? How else do we construct our own meaning? We have to look at this this idea that's actually a little bit a step or two beneath what what Tim Keller was talking about. He mentions it in his book as well. It's called root idols. Root idols are this. They are deep motivations behind the things that we tend to worship. So most of us tend to worship things or put a lot of faith in or a lot of intentionality behind career or money or family or beauty or sex or intelligence. But root idols are what motivate us towards those things. They are things like power, approval, pleasure and comfort, or control. And that's what I want to talk about today. When we look at the whole sweep of human existence, this whole time thing that Solomon is talking about, the enigma of why we're here and where it all fits in together, I think that overwhelms some of us. The shortness of life, the enigma of why, and the long duration of history. And so what do we do? We seek control. And we play it out in so many little ways. In a world that feels random and meaningless, which many of you have experienced that, many of us are motivated by control. And it's not just the control freaks in the room. Some of you are out there. You've got to control everything. The rest of us who are above that (laughs) are still motivated by control in some aspect of our lives. It may play out in ways that are not quite as obvious. It may be what's motivating some other idol in our life. Let me give you an example. Many of us would identify money as a false god, right? That's something you could worship, you could put too much trust in. But most of us, when we think about money as a false god, what do we think about? We think about somebody who has a ton and spends a ton. Clearly, money is really important to them. But what we should be asking is why money is important to them it may actually be a deeper root idol like approval. Somebody goes around and spends money all the time because they want people to like them. They're really after approval. Or it might be power. They fly around in the jet, they push money in order to have influence and power. But what if you're not one of these people with tons of money that spends it all the time? What if instead you save and invest and are very frugal and wise with your money? Well, it's possible you're just doing it the right way. But it's also possible that you have an idol of control that's built around money. Tim Keller explains it like this. Some people want lots of money as a way to control their own world and life. Such people usually don't spend much money and live very modestly. They keep it all safely saved and invested so they can feel completely secure in the world. A root idol of control 
a root motivator of control creates a false trust in the security that money can provide. Let's take another one. What if your idol is your beauty and your body? That's the thing you focus on. If that's your idol, it could lead for some people to an eating disorder like anorexia. But let's ask a step below that. Why might somebody struggle with anorexia? It may be because they are deep down in seeking approval and praise. They need people to tell them, I'm thin. You're thin. You look beautiful. They need to hear that. But why else might somebody go to anorexia? You can actually ask the psychologists on this. It's control. They're trying to find something in their life, in a life that feels out of control, something they have mastery over, something that they can manage, something they can hold on to when they can't hold on to anything else. We've talked in here about the challenge of even our kids being an idol, something that we worship, which is a very obvious one here in Vienna. One way you may do that is by spoiling your kids, giving them whatever they want, spending as much as you, as you can on them. You really worship your kids. And of course, that'll cause them to possibly grow up and ruin them as a spoiled brat. But we can also take our kids and try to control them, control every aspect of their lives. And when we mean the best for them, we want to keep them safe and secure, make sure they don't get hurt, protect them from people who will harm them, friends who will, who will be mean to them. We want to make sure that they're set up for success, that they get the right foods, they go to bed at the right time. We want them to be happy. And of course, ultimately, we may end up just driving them away. Kids can be an idol driven by a root idol to control them. And what happens when a micro-controlled kid grows up and leaves and rejects the controlling parent? You know what that controlling parent does? They turn and find the closest person next to control, hmm, the spouse. Friends. You see, if you just take the external, like money or beauty or kids, and say, okay, I, I need to not let that be the main focus, but you don't deal with the root issue of control, you will simply turn it to something else. Maybe you'll realize you have a money issue, you're too frugal and tight. Okay, I'm going to be a little bit more generous, but instead I'll turn my control to something else, like my eating or my family. Not all of us are control freaks in every aspect of our lives. But what I've found as I've thought about this is most of us have some aspect of our life that we turn to and we try and manage and control to give us a sense of mastery, a sense that this world that seems out of control isn't. Why do we do it? Why do we seek control? A lot of it has to do with fear. Fear of suffering, of loss, of pain, fear of death, and a need for some sense of security in a world that we often see does seem random and violent. Some of us are, enter into control because of pride, the assumption that we know best and actually should be in control. And many of us do it for just selfish reasons. That's really my favorite reason for controlling things. It's, I want things my way. I want them to be easy for me. I want them to be on my timing. And if my family 
and friends would just do what I say, it would really work out best, especially for me. When we use control, what we're doing is we're aiming to take care of our own security, our own assurance, our own happiness, protecting ourselves from pain or rejection or discomfort or even death. Underneath our need for control is an attempt to be God. It's to be God over some aspect of our life or over the whole of our life. And yet, as Solomon has observed, and we all know, we are not really in control of anything. We are not God. The markets crash, beauty fades, and death comes. And we have very little power to control it. You can try so hard to keep your kids happy and safe, but you cannot control everything. Josh was a really great 16-year-old kid. He was smart. He was very friendly. He was so sweet to little kids, especially his siblings, respectful to adults. He had a strong faith in God, was a really just sharp kid. He was going to pick up his sister, who was nine years old, and in a Bible study, a little like elementary school Bible study, from her Bible study and driving her home. And there he was on Route 9, a windy road, heading back to his house in Loudoun. And his car went over the yellow lines just a little bit, struck an oncoming truck, and he was killed. You can't know when the car is going to veer over the double yellow line. We can't control it. Keep your kids as safe and happy as you want, but we can't control everything. Sometimes it does feel like we are just a random dot on a smear of dots, and that we are nothing more than a sandcastle to an incoming tide, especially when it comes to things like death, which Solomon also talks about. Death mocks our pretensions to control. Death always mocks our pretensions to control. Because no matter how much control you think you have on life, you cannot control death. And that's why Solomon gets at this in verses 18 to 20. I said in my heart with regard to the children of man that God is testing them that they may see that they themselves are just beasts. For what happens to the children of man and what happens to the beasts is the same. As one dies, so dies the other. They all have the same breath and man has no advantage over the beasts for all is vanity." All go to one place, all are from dust, and to dust all return. All are from dust, and to dust all return. Both the animals and people die, life is meaningless. Once again, Solomon lifting us up. But this is the conclusion if you go from a secular or naturalist or atheistic observation point of view. If you sh simply go on the scientific route of trying to observe life and say, do we find meaning, the conclusion that you must come to is we are no different than the animals. That's what Solomon's saying here. So you can be Mozart or Van Gogh or Jefferson, or you can be a, a donkey or a mouse or a mosquito, and there is no difference. 
I'm a mosquito and Mozart. They both make noise. And they both die. But this was the conclusion of Darwin and Nietzsche over a hundred years ago. From observation alone, you cannot prove that there's a creator. Therefore, there is no creator. There's nothing after death that we can prove. Therefore, there is no eternity. And if there's no beginning and there's no end, then there's no meaning. We're just here for survival. And if you really are honest in that way of thinking, you have to go to the conclusion, why cry if your child dies? A mother pig kicks out the runt of the litter. It's just survival. What's the difference between your child and the runt of the litter? But are we really satisfied with that? No, we're not, right? It's not how anyone I've ever seen reacts to death. Even agnostics who will not confess God won't settle for death. Just this past week, a high school friend of mine died. Many of us didn't know that he was sick. And the reaction on Facebook, because he was such a joyful, friendly, hugging, smiling guy, was just an outpouring. Some were angry, some were confused, everyone was sad. Here's some of the things that were written. I'm reminded of how cruel life can be. Everything does not happen for a reason. That is a lie. As much as I try to see the good in everything, there are things there are times when I just cannot live in the moment for it is all we are guaranteed. Raging against death and the meaninglessness in life. Another person said, there are some things in life that are supposed to be constant to keep the game from getting out of control. He was not supposed to die before us. He was supposed to help us get through. And person after person said, I'm just so sad. Why do we react with grief or with rage when someone close to us dies? If it's random, if there is no God, if there is no purpose and no eternity, then what's the difference between your friend and a mosquito, between your child and a baby pig? We don't cry when a leaf falls from the tree in the fall. It's just a leaf. Our grief and our anger at death is our heart longing for more, more time, more time with them, more of them. And it mimics, it reflects something that Solomon hit on in verse 11 when he said, God has put eternity in our hearts. In the midst of this whole long rambling about the meaninglessness of life, he, he throws this in there, almost like you're going to pass over it. He has put eternity into man's heart. Something in us longs for more, tries to grab hold of something more. And that's the claim of the Bible and of Christianity. The claim is that we are made for more, more time than the 12 or 40 or 70 years on this life. We are made for eternity. 
C.S. Lewis put it this way in something that we read just two weeks ago. If I find in myself a desire which no experience in this world can satisfy, the most probable, not probably, the most probable explanation is that I was made for another world, a spiritual and eternal one. We are made for eternity. And that's why we should actually get angry at death. It's okay to rage at death. It's okay to grieve and to wail at death because it should not be. And it's also why we will not settle for the answer, it's just random, it's accidental. Survival of the fittest, life is meaningless. We want a narrative and a trajectory and we want purpose. If you take the secular mindset to the extreme, it would say that life is a random splotch of words. And you have this random splotch of words that we're supposed to construct our own meaning out of. There it is. That's what life is. So do whatever you want with that. Make something of life. Figure out how you want to order those things. It doesn't really matter which direction you go. In fact, just hold on to one word if that's all you want to do. But the Christian narrative says life is ordered and intended. These same words are meant to have an order and a meaning. And this is the same exact set of words. But the only reason you know it's supposed to go in this order is because an author put them this way. And the way you find out where your word's supposed to fit is you find out the sentences the author has put down. This is a description of the world that God has made. The random blotchy words all over the place is what people would tell you is the way life is. But this is the world we're looking for, the world that God has made. There is a story. It is the big story. It is God's story. It is creation, redemption, and restoration. Here's the story summed up. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. There is design and intention and a designer. And though there is a problem in the world, there is a solution in this narrative. God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. And there is a telos, which means goal or end. There is a direction it's all going. Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. If you want to find purpose and meaning, you need to find your story in his story, the story. And in order to do that, we need to figure out how we're supposed to live in this world, right? How should you respond to the march of time, to the shortness of life, and to the events in life that we cannot make sense of? We grasp for control, but the answer is surrender, not control. We need to realize, as Solomon also does in this passage, that God is sovereign and you and I are not. So we need to trust him. What does that look like? 
It looks like, for one, open-handedness. Surrender looks like open-handedness. Our money, our kids, our career, our bodies, our brains, our marriage, our very life is not our own. None of it is ours. It is his. We are caretakers, not controllers. And we're called to serve God with these things, not serve ourselves. So whatever it is, our money, our career, our family, our friendships, we're to fit these things into his story, not try to write our own story on our own. So we live open-handedly, surrendering them to God and his purposes for them. And the second way we surrender is we have an eternal-mindedness. If we know where it's all going, the sort of, of direction that he's taking this whole plan of redemption and restoration, then we live now like we will one day live in eternity. What does that mean? What I eat or drink should be the things that I will eat and drink in eternity. How I relate to my siblings, my friends, my parents, my kids should be how I'm going to relate to them in eternity. What comes out of my mouth, what I prioritize should be the same things that I'm going to be doing for billions of years. Picture heaven and God's description of it and live that way now. And when we live with that sort of eternal mindedness, it also gives us assurance and hope so we don't have to live in fear of the danger and death in this world because that's not all there is. We don't need to hold tightly. We can surrender. But can you trust this God? Can you actually surrender the things that are most important to you to him? I think to do that, you need to know that God loves you and he is good. But we need to remember the gospel. God surrendered all for us. Philippians 2 tells us that though he is God, he did not exploit his divinity for his own good, but instead he emptied himself, surrendered himself to become a slave, a man, a crucified savior. Jesus surrendered all for us. Everything that he had authority to control, he surrendered for us. There's Pontius Pilate interviewing him, saying, you know I can set you free or crucify you. I have the authority to do that. Jesus says, you only have that authority because I'm granting it to you. Even as he's hanging on the cross, the people who crucified him and are mocking him owe their very existence to the one who is crucifying them. Come down, save yourself. If the gospel is true, then the one who did not come down did not come down for us. He surrendered the ability to vanquish the very people who were crucifying him, surrendering his control for us to secure our place in his eternal plan. This is the good news summed up, Romans 8.32. He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, surrendered him for us all, how will he not also graciously give us all things we need? You and I want control, but you can't have it. I can't have it. 
but we can have God. God is sovereign. He is in control. He is good, and he loves us, and we can trust him. So looking back on everything Solomon said, life is short. You and I are small in the grand scheme of things. We may not always understand why, but God does have a bigger story that he's writing, art that he's creating. Sometimes it feels like we're just a dot, right? This little dot of smears. But when you start to get a picture of what God is doing in this bigger story, you realize that your story fits into something a little bit bigger. You start to make sense of it. That same little red dot becomes the masterpiece that God is creating. You are part of something God is doing. You are integral to what God wants to do. Find your story, your purpose in his story, in his masterpiece. Let us pray. God, we try to find our own meaning and purpose in the things that we can control, holding on so tightly to our kids or our money or our health. It is a fearful world in which we live but I pray that you would give us the faith to trust you with our lives, to hold open-handedly those things that we hold tightly, to live not in fear but in the hope of eternity and the assurance that you love us more than we love ourselves. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.